Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Monday, August 9th, 2021. I'm John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. Returning uh, after a week's vacation, senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And as ever, associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. And executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. I have to apologize to everybody who subscribes to this podcast on Apple Podcasts. We had terrible technical problems on Friday, and uh, it appears that uh, the podcast never loaded onto Apple Podcasts for reasons that we do not understand, and it's very hard to, to, this is all an automated process, so it's very hard to, like, troubleshoot with Apple, and so uh, you didn't get to hear Friday's show, which I got to tell you, I uh, because we, we we had to throw one out and do a second one, which was the beginning of our technical crisis on Friday. Uh, it wasn't our best work, so you um, so you may uh, you may have been spared. Let's put it that way. And for those of you who listened to it, thank you very much for your continued patronage and kindness in maybe putting that one in the rearview mirror. Uh, Somebody else who I think is going to be in the rearview mirror at some point in the next eight weeks, uh, maybe as soon as today, maybe eight weeks from now, is Andrew Cuomo. Uh, uh, the big news uh, last night was that his leading henchman, uh, Melissa DeRosa, his secretary is her title, uh, uh, the person who calls up people and threatens them on his behalf when he doesn't do it himself, and who... Uh, last week uh described a reporter with the new york post who was uh who has been covering her and and cuomo and who is moving on to a different beat as having been obsessed with her like a stalker uh only because she is the uh you know number two person uh power person in albany and she covers albany um so she's a real elegant, an elegant figure with great supple, a supple touch and sophistication, and uh, and and uh, you know, in, in in this regard, anyway, Melissa DeRosa has headed for the hills. She announced last night that she was uh, resigning, and uh, in her uh, brief statement, uh, did not mention Cuomo's name. So I think we can assume that she is heading for the hills because she. Uh, has does not want to be implicated in whatever happens from this moment forward as Andrew Cuomo tries to remain in office. She will have to answer for her behavior beforehand. If there is an impeachment inquiry, she will, of course, be summoned to it. If there are criminal proceedings, she will, of course, be summoned by a grand jury to uh, testify before that. But whatever happens from uh, last night, which was uh, August 8th, uh, forward, she no longer has to answer for. So, uh, I think we can assume that, uh, that the, uh, the bell is tolling. It reminded me of, uh, when, uh, U.S. forces went into an Iraq, into Iraq and, uh, Saddam's deputy Tariq Aziz, uh, surrendered to U.S. forces. Yeah, right. <laughs> and we set up, he's next. Well, and this, can I just point out, I know that we have, uh, especially in the Me Too era, there was a lot of uh, proper credence given to whistleblowers, but there was not enough focus on the enablers of some of these men. And she was, she has been his chief enabler, not just with the harassment, but with the covering up of, of nursing home deaths, with everything about how he handled COVID, and then tried to rewrite that narrative. So 
she is the classic rat leaving the sinking ship emphasis on rat and i i feel like there's a there's a trend in our culture to rehabilitate people like her rather quickly and michael i hope cohen exactly michael cohen, yeah. exactly so i hope that this we're seeing what i think is actually a, a pendulum swing back to what how things used to be when you had aides who were doing the bidding of rather dastardly politicians uh, getting their due as well. Uh, I'm not so sure about that. I have to, you're probably going to see a lot of people doing their best Billy Zane impression here. Nearer my God to thee plays for all. But why did we rehabilitate Mike Cohen? Not because he was you know, worthy of it, obviously, but because he was some of some instrumental political utility to Democrats because he, he was, you know, the, he was a rat, he was a stoolie now. Right. Um, What's the instrumental political utility for Democrats in relitigating the COVID response? What's the instrumental utility in really diving into the years they spent papering over this guy's handsiness, his his demonstrable disrespect for female autonomy? Where where are they going to get the you know the the strength to to de- perform that audit because it only reflects poorly on Democrats? Look. Melissa DeRosa, just to take this to be, you know, use the specific case that we're dealing with. Uh, there are a lot of people who hate her and a lot of people in the media hate her. She is awful. She's mean. She's nasty. She calls people up at two o'clock in the morning and screams on the phone. Uh, this, she is somebody against whom people have been gathering a lot of string. And the longer that Cuomo stays in office and the longer that he doesn't leave, as I said in this New York Post piece I wrote last week, the more incentive there is to overturn every single rock that has been laid either by him or by his people over the course of 40 years in politics, beginning with his serving as his father's henchman uh, in the 1980s. Like, this is no joke. This is a very serious business, and, and she is implicated in it and her own personal conduct uh, has been sufficiently egregious with enough people who have never had any incentive or any reason to make her the story really uh, that that now that now that the blood is in the water the bloom is off the rose whatever whatever metaphor you want to use um uh, the longer this goes on, the more there will be exposure of this, not by Democrats, but by reporters, by by, by media types. Um, so uh, just, uh, you know, start your betting pools now. He's gone. If he's not gone because he quits, he's gone because he will be impeached. I don't know how there will be a vote against his removal. Uh, he has until the end of this week to supply the... Uh, the uh, the Senate Assembly, I, uh, the New York State Assembly, with documents defending himself against these charges. He has till August 13th before a formal uh, impeachment inquiry will begin. And uh, judging from the hour-long interview that his lawyer, I think whose name is Susan Glavin, I believe, gave uh, to CNN this weekend, he does not have a case. His case is, well, I mean, he may have touched her, but maybe he didn't touch her. He doesn't touch, whatever. And this whole thing that, like, this is the first sex scandal without sex. It's not a sex scandal. It's a power scandal. It's a humiliation scandal. It's a power fetish scandal. Uh, Nobody is even calling it a sex scandal. And we can discuss whether or not somehow in some other, you know, oh, everyone's so sensitive now. But that's fine. He doesn't get to make that argument. 
he doesn't get to make the argument, oh, look, in the old days, what does he do? I mean, he's just like an old guy. He's that kind of person. He passed legislation. He, you know, he advocated for, you know, no, you know, what was it? Um, what did he say? Uh, no strikes. You don't get three strikes. You know, it's like uh, victims must be believed, all of that. So he doesn't get to use the, look, the terms of this changed around me, and I'm just going to sit here and work for the for the public. All right, so we can move on from that to um, the extraordinarily uh, depressing and raging and entirely predictable news that uh, a major city in Afghanistan has fallen and the uh, State Department announced uh, to American citizens over the weekend that it's every man for himself. Get out of town. Get out of Afghanistan. Find commercial means to leave the country, uh, no one should stay. You can't be protected. It's sort of like, you know Develop what? a plan that doesn't rely on American assistance. Yeah, so basically what that the means is it's it's April 20th, 1975. Uh, get out before, uh, we're not going to have helicopters to lift you off the roof of the embassy in Kabul when when they start swarming. So you better get the hell out. And remember when Biden announcing this said, uh, he thought that the Afghan military could, you know, needed to step up and stand up, and we're going to be there to help them. And what else did he say? He said so it was that, very unlikely the Taliban would take over the country. Right. Yeah. The Taliban is about is going to take over the country in four minutes. Obviously. I mean, it, you know, they have they have. Uh, uh, this is uh, horrible. It's monstrous. Um, uh, we're throwing away a twenty year project. Uh, you know, so this, uh, so this, this old man who has had nothing but horrible ideas about how to save Afghanistan gets to bug out and claim that he bugged America out uh, while the country falls to one of the most uh, vicious, evil, brutal, and horrible uh, uh, terrorist and culture-destroying, culture-defiling, misogynistic, uh, reactionary groups the world has ever seen. And, that's and, that's great work, and the and one of the and one who had who facilitated the greatest attack on on the U.S. Right. What did we do? We went into Afghanistan to get out the Taliban. Now we're leaving Afghanistan to bring to to usher back the the to usher the Taliban back in. I mean, if you think about sort of if you think about things in the longer term, so it's like all right. So there was twenty years where we had to go. That that's part of the will be part of the legend. That'll be part of the. A mystical, wonderful legend. Like we ran, we ran the country. Then the then the then the evil people came in and you know uh, and drove us out. And we just bided our time. And we never left. We never stopped. We never stopped fighting. We never stopped pushing. We waited them out. We're back in power. And who knows what we'll do to them now? And it's just going to be, I think, a parade of of bad news from now until they are they fully take over um, and then and then the bad news that happens when they take over yeah right you know but, it, but it's i mean even even the new york times has had to write a piece over the weekend and i say this i mean they were like they are writing as if in shock to see what how quickly this is unraveled as well i mean if you have leon panetta the former uh, obama uh, defense official saying well, the best we can hope for is a stalemate between the Taliban and the Afghan forces. I mean, really, that that's the best you can hope for after this. I mean, there, there's it's very clear that even the the sort of Biden allies in the media are horrified at what's happening here. And it's 
you know, crickets from from Biden. I mean, what has he said and what, how has he spoken about this at all? How has he suggested they might have to revisit some of the withdrawal plans they've already announced? Nothing. Yeah, they're um, not. They're not. I mean, there's just airstrikes. That's that's, you know, well, we have increased airstrikes, but, you know, yeah, so they what? could barely even commit to that. Right. But they publicly struggled with the idea of whether they not they, whether or not they were going. I mean, the, the stated policy explicitly was that they were only going to execute airstrikes on Al Qaeda, Al Qaeda targets, Al Qaeda linked targets, and only until August. And then, and then it's free for all. They said this publicly, and then they had to backtrack on it when it became very clear that advancing Taliban columns were going to take over positions that we had abandoned in the dead of night. I mean, it couldn't have done this worse. And and I, I, but I just, I wonder whether or not people actually do care because I mean, we care obviously. And I'm very cer- certain that the public will care if they see atrocities, if they see people who worked with Americans, for example, tortured, um, women being tortured. Uh, and if they see the symbols of American power, you know, being you know disrespected, paraded around, I think they'll well, care. We, we know that. I don't think it has to be that, symbols. It doesn't, it, by the way, d- skip symbols. I mean, every American is not going to be able to get out of Afghanistan by the time the Taliban take over. You think there aren't going to be hangings in a stadium of Americans? Remember, Americans are, are can be very fickle and all of that. It was two beheadings by ISIS that flipped the American political dynamic. 36% of Americans wanted uh, the U.S. to stay in Iraq uh, before... The murder of I, I I'm I'm sorry I can't remember the Mark names. Mark Foley, right? Mark right, right. Mark Foley, uh, and then there, there was a young woman uh, whose name I can't remember, and then that flipped totally to like two thirds of Americans said, "Go back in there and destroy ISIS." You think but ISIS something? wanted publicity? You think they the Taliban don't the want to... publicity? No, because right. we've seen a thousand murders already attributable to political backlash from advancing Taliban positions on these on these not, cities. Not of Americans. I'm civilian that, casualties but, are way up. There's like over two, like 2,400 civilian casualties yeah. just between May and June. I mean, these are execution style murders, and right. no, we haven't seen them because no, there isn't any interest in, in generating that kind of publicity yet. We haven't seen anything about the um, emerging refugee crisis yet. Right. I mean, this sort of thing might right. become impossible to ignore, but to the extent that it is ignorable, the press will do its best. Well, what won't be ignorable is when they do it to Americans, and that is going to happen, and then we will see what Americans say. I, I just want to read a little bit to you. Uh, Jonathan Last in his uh, uh, weekly, his weekend newsletter uh, uh, highlighted a piece by Adam Tooze from a website called Chartbook um, on what we, basically what's happened in Afghanistan over 20 years. And it's not, you know, an unalloyed positive story, like uh, the most valuable crop in Afghanistan remains opium, for example, uh, you know, and uh, uh, there is no national economy, according to him, as we understand it. There are lots of little minor economies, but it doesn't, there is no, as he says, integrated circular flow of the sort that we imagine a modern economy having. Um, uh, that was an American project. It never really succeeded. But, okay, uh, in 2003, there were 30,000 students enrolled in universities in Afghanistan. That number is now 180,000. In 2018, there were 49,000 female students. Half the population has cell phones. Okay? 
Uh, electricity consumption per capita has gone up approximately seven times since 2000. Uh, Afghanistan has generated, has expanded its own generating capacity. Um, there has been very little success in poverty eradication, but, and this is the most interesting detail, it seems, and, and this, this jives with a, a piece that Jonathan Foreman wrote for us years ago on the su- American success in Afghanistan. Uh, Afghanistan today is still poor, but it is not in the condition it was 25 years ago. Kabul in the 1990s was a ruined city with a population of barely over a million. Today, it is a sprawling, low-income metropolis studded with high-rise offices and apartment blocks with an official population of over 4 million. So uh, this idea that we got nothing and it was all a failure and we need to pull out, we are leaving behind... Uh, a complex circumstance that uh, has to be adjudged a success for the Afghan people. And we are now, our, our, our departure uh, is consigning them to hell. And we, we are going to see that hell. We are clearly going to see that hell faster than we ever thought we would see it. Or not, uh, not actually, to be fair... This is what I always assumed. The minute we said we were leaving, it was all going to go to hell in a handbasket, and it's going to happen. And it's going to happen, you know, by the end of September. I mean, oh, like, but all of a sudden, every expert in the universe says, "Oh, we always knew this was going to happen really fast, right?" Absolutely not. This revisionist nonsense is really very frustrating. There were some people, present company included, who anticipated that collapse would occur very rapidly. In, our, in the absence of our position. We weren't even there performing combat operations. We weren't even there in a, really in an advisory role. We were behind closed doors. You know, you hope people in Afghanistan used to complain that they, they could find a Russian in a minute. Russians were everywhere. They're on the streets. They're talking to you. They're handing out money. You know, their, their influence is, is palpable and, and tangible, whereas Americans hold up inside Bagram. They, they, they walled themselves off from the Afghan public. That was our presence there for the better part of the 18 months prior to withdrawal. Then all of a sudden we disappear overnight and collapse occurs. But all the expert class says, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, we, we knew this was going to happen. No, you didn't. None of you did. And if you did, you weren't talking about it. You weren't being honest about it. And, you know, uh, talk about unignorable. What, what we won't really be able to um, know fully un- until it's too late is the extent to which our presence there kept the U.S. safe. Um, you know, and that, that's the, the, the opposite of that, um, meaning, uh, attacks against the U S or attacks against American, uh, interests, um, that will take longer based out of, uh, Taliban run Afghanistan will take longer to materialize than the, than the, than the humanitarian disasters that were, that we're going to witness there. And the sophisticated, Um, and they think that's a trite point that, what did we get for our trillion dollar investment in this place over 20 years? Well, no significant terrorist attack directed from foreign soil on in the United States. Yeah. That seems to me like an investment that's worth paying. Can you imagine if you could have paid a trillion dollars on September 10th, 2001 to not have that happen? Would you have paid that price? They would have paid more. That's an ex- much more. That's an excellent point. And, you know, people have amnesia, so they don't remember what we're dealing with. I mean, go go rent the Kite Runner tonight. Watch the movie version of the Kite Runner, just to just to uh, bone up on uh, who the Taliban were when they ran Afghanistan. This was 
as evil a regime as has ever existed on the face of the earth. And they're coming back into power. They're coming back into power and they have revenge on their mind. And we'll, as, as Abe says, and as no, we'll see, we're going to see what, we're going to see what that means that they have revenge on their mind and that it will be very difficult emotionally, psychologically, and tactically for the current sitting administration to do anything about this since this would have been entirely caused by their decision to bug out. The reversal of a policy or the you know partial reversal of the policy, which uh, which Obama had to do uh, with ISIS in 2013, it's going to be very difficult for well, Biden. Why, though? Well, the, the same would have been true for Obama. He was His withdrawal from Iraq was a very signature accomplishment of his administration. He had to backtrack because he would have been accused of presiding over genocide. Right. Why wouldn't the, uh, the Biden administration do the same if the accusation, well, okay, you're presiding over the, you know, consigning women and girls to this medieval torture state? Because I say so. Because, again, <laughs> it, it, I think that the animating change was effectively terrorist attacks on the United States in the form of, of in the form of kidnapping, torturing, and beheading Americans. Now, that was eight, nine years ago, wasn't today. And, uh, you know, we were, uh, what had happened, uh, you know, was still fresh in memory. Um, so who knows what the American response will be. We also have a Republican Party uh, that is, if anything, more isolationist uh, than the Democratic Party. So it's not as though there will be that, you know, you can stand there as a kind of cynical Democrat and worry that the Republicans are going to start drum beating about how awful this was that happened. I mean, you can name the Republicans who will. You can name the, you can say Tom Cotton uh, will. You know, Liz Tom- Cheney posted a statement. Yeah, Liz Cheney. But I mean, you, you can tell like the veterans will, you know, Adam Kitzinger will. And, 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 and as I say, Tom Cotton among the kind of Trump wing in some sense of the Republican Party, there are a few people who will say this, this, this cannot be allowed to stand. But, you know, we are standing here with a, with a party that was so transformed by Trump that, that they will not represent a kind of, um, we better get to the, we better get, deal with this or we're going to have our lunch eaten by, by these guys who are going to speak uh, to the American people uh, in a way that we can't. Uh, with that, let me talk to you guys about Bambi, because when running a business, HR issues can kill you. Wrongful termination suits, minimum wage requirements, labor regulations, and HR manager salaries aren't cheap, an average of $75,000 a year. Bambi, spelled B-A-M-B-E-E, was created specifically for small business. You get a dedicated HR manager, craft HR policy, and maintain your compliance all for just $99 a month. With Bambi, you can change HR from your biggest liability to your biggest strength. Your dedicated HR manager is available by phone, email, or real-time chat. From onboarding to terminations, they customize your policies to fit your business Help your manager employees day-to-day all for just $99 a month, month-to-month. No hidden fees. Cancel anytime. You didn't start your business because you wanted to spend time in HR compliance. Let Bambi help. Get your free HR audit today. Go to Bambi.com slash commentary right now to schedule your free HR audit. That's B-A-M-B-E-E dot com slash commentary. Spelled BAM to the B-E-E dot com slash commentary. Um, Abe, uh, 
now we got to get back to uh, Corona and the Delta variant and the uh, and the growing. I, I don't know the word panic is not too is not too much of an understatement. There is a total media driven panic going on about the Delta variant, and and I'm I was trying very hard over the weekend to pull myself out of my own priors and try to examine the data that I could see and understand to see whether uh, I had been uh, uh, poo-pooing or downgrading the severity of the threat and the nature of the growing threat and all of that. I'm going to, I'll get to that in a minute, but Abe, you have been trying to collate data on various aspects of where we are and what the threat is. Well, I mean, what I'm trying to figure out, and it's not easy because there's, there's the, the, this information has stopped being, um, some of this has stopped being collected in a systematic way. Yes, we know that cases are rising dramatically. Uh, we're up to, you know, uh, I don't know, we're over 100,000 uh, daily cases. Um, and um, deaths are also now in the 500-day range. Um, but what what I'm trying to figure out, because to me it seems most pertinent uh, on the matter of whether or not we should be panicking here is what pers- is it still the case as it was three weeks ago when 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 such things were still talked about at the White House and and wherever else that um, the overwhelming majority, as in you know ninety five ninety eight percent. Um, of those being hospitalized with new cases of COVID were unvaccinated. If that is the case still, and as far as I could tell, there is no reason to think it's not the case. I've, I've, I've found a few little data points that, that, that continue to support that. If that is the case, um, I don't exactly understand the panic right now. Um, I, I, it's sad. It's very sad that, that, that people are out there uh, uh, dying and being hospitalized. But um, everyone has made their decision. If the people who decided that they wanted to, with that they were willing to risk getting it, have made that decision. The people who didn't want to risk it have been vaccinated, and that's where we are. That's where. Okay, we're at. tell tell us about the the data points that you've uncovered. So what I found, the only thing I found was that uh, in uh, in Alabama, for example, uh, the state health officer uh, Scott Harris told the Associated Press that just twenty six. Two six of Alabama's uh, eleven thousand six hundred COVID nineteen deaths were people who were fully vaccinated. That came out two days ago, and uh, in uh, in Ohio, Mike Dewine said that ninety eight percent of hospitalizations in Ohio are among unvaccinated. Um, so while the while the larger numbers, the 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 total numbers of Infections and hospitalizations and deaths are rising. The vaccine seems to be holding, and because and, I think the panic is somehow driven on this around this idea that uh, maybe vaccines aren't as great as we thought, and I don't think that 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 that's actually true. Let's see if we can separate. I always say this, but we need to separate out the strands because one of the things that's going on here is that everything is being elided into everything else. So one un- unambiguous thing is that the vast majority of cases involving 
a severe illness or death as a result of the Delta variant remain the unvaccinated. And it remains the unvaccinated infecting the unvaccinated. That seems to be inarguable, but I'm not sure that's the lesson that people are taking from the public health discussion of the matter. So the unvaccinated are a threat to the unvaccinated. So there are two forms of the unvaccinated. There are the unvaccinated or three. Let's take it three ways. The unvaccinated over the age of 18, the unvaccinated between the ages of 12 and 18, and then the unvaccinated from birth to 12. So every adult over the age of 18 has had access in some sense to the vaccine since March. For a while, it was hard to get. You had to make appointments. You had to stay online, get appointments. That's been not the case since April. Uh, And so, and those numbers, according to the latest thing that I've seen, 18 and up, 61% of the American population 18 and up is fully vaccinated. 80% of the population 65 and up is fully vaccinated with at least one dose suggesting that they will get two doses and therefore be, you know, fully vaccinated. 18 and up 71% as of today, 65 and up 90% as of today. Okay. Now we know that the, we do know from the previous experience that uh, the, the, the disease hits the elderly hardest So 90% or 80% are fully vaccinated. What we don't know is how many of those who are dying because of the Delta variant are among the 20% who are not fully vaccinated or the 10% who have at least one dose. Because until we know those numbers, it's actually very hard to make sense out of what's going on. In other words, you would want to disaggregate this so you knew almost every old person is getting vaccinated. But there's still a small but significant population that's not getting vaccinated. Are they the ones who are disproportionately dying from the Delta variant? I mean, this is a very rational conversation, but it's not yeah. the one that's being had. No, I, I mean, know. This, but kind of, this I is don't, not but... the conversation that is going on right now in, right. in, the, in among public health officials, among political leaders, right. among people in the press who, who are normally much more responsible than this. They're saying, listen, if you're vaccinated, it doesn't matter. It does not matter. You cannot resume your normal life. Because you could get COVID, you could transmit COVID. They're not saying you could die from COVID. They're not saying you could be hospitalized from COVID. Though that's a remote possibility, and it is a possibility, but it's a remote one. They don't talk about that because it's not relevant. What they want to do is control you. And I hate to sound like a conspiracy theorist here, but this is the only way they exercise agency. Because they they have no power to convince the unvaccinated. Okay, It's driving them nuts. So all they're doing is exerting the control they already have on the people who are still interested in listening to that's that's actually why i think a lot of the panic is driven by these stories of the young person dying of covid i've seen those those have you know quintupled in the last you know few weeks it's like this young person regrets not having gotten the you know not having gotten the vaccine or you know super fit 42 year old dad dead of covid so those stories actually fuel a panic but in buried in there is not this rational conversation that we're having about well what are the risks you know per group is this an anomaly also never discussed in the american context but hugely important is the number of comorbidities. We've always avoided this in the, in the conversations about COVID. Americans are 
rather unhealthy. We're overweight, we're pre-diabetic. There's a lot of stuff that that exists as a baseline for our health that even compared to other countries, we're going to have different outcomes even with a good vaccination rate if a new variant comes. And so with the Delta variant, the other thing I've seen besides young people are dying is the idea um, that's been mulled over by again, public health folks and some doctors in, in media reports is whether it is in fact more in, more uh, deadly. You're more likely to get sicker quicker, as, as one of the doctors said in, in a recent New York Times piece. Again, fueling a kind of panic for the average person wondering, do I need to wear a mask at home around my eight-year-old? Right. Okay. But then let's, let's, let's continue with the rational discussion, because if you'll allow me, because it's important for people I think to understand that there are a series of questions that are not being answered because they're all being glommed together. The most important question is, is there a shift in the nature of corona that places the unvaccinated, which means now the majority of people who are unvaccinated are under the age of 12. Are they at new risk and a kind of risk they were not at before, because what we know is with the with the first variant, 600,000 people died of the first variant, of whom 400 were under the age of 18. 400 out of 600,000, okay? So for us to get concerned that the unvaccinated under 12 are at serious risk, we have to know that the disease has transmuted sufficiently so that it has now become a threat to them in a way that it was not before. And that's where the data collection is horrible. And that's why what we are reading is are hearing about are anecdotal stories, right? The kid who had to be airlifted from Austin to Houston or something like that because there wasn't a proper bed for the kid where he is. That's one person out of 330 million Americans. That is one person. In Texas, we keep hearing about a terrible, the, everything is filling up. The, the ICUs are filling up and it's an emergency in Austin and all of this. But we also know that there is an outbreak in Texas of RSV, a childhood respiratory condition that everybody who has parents knows about, you know, everybody who has parents, every parent knows about, and that is, you know, prevalent among children and has always been prevalent among children. And it's scary because, like, they, it's horrible and they're in a lot of pain and they get very sick. But RSV has been around forever. And these two things are getting elided. The CDC decided in its wisdom in March not to collect all of this data. Like there's all this data that are not being collected. Now, the CDC has been a bad collector of data. Almost all the data that we use, we use from these aggregators that are essentially private. The New York Times, Johns Hopkins, Worldometer. These are not... These these numbers don't come from the CDC. So we actually have a public health bureaucracy run by an agency that make, that has billions of dollars that isn't collecting sufficient data to understand what the, you know the decisions that it's making. So at this moment, I would say we don't actually really know what's going on, but we know one so thing. So in that, that sense, I, no, having but, a rational conversation yeah. is rational. 
No, but I want to. I want to just say one final thing, and then we can go to what what's being that's going on because I feel like we're losing this argument, and there's nothing we can do. But here is the final point: we locked down last year. We shut down. We masked. We closed venues. Restaurants were closed. Theaters were closed. Arenas were closed. Sports was closed. Everything was closed because of a fear of a wave of death the likes of which we had never seen. Death, right? That we would be like the Spanish flu, two million people would die. We had a way of stopping that. We saw it coming. What what would what kind of place would we be? What kind of people would we be if we didn't inter if we did not intervene and do what we what little we knew without a vaccine, without anything else, to stop it. That was about death. That was not about getting sick. We didn't shut the economy down because people were getting sick. We shut the economy down out of fear that 2 million people were going to die. And in the end, 600,000 people died. And the fact that that happened kind of justified retroactively the lockdown. So you have a lot of people who say that's not true. But whatever is the case, there was a moral, okay, we didn't have, we didn't know what to do. So we did this. That was not because people were going to get sick from COVID. It was because people were going to die from COVID. The, the risk here, the thing that's going on now, is that we are now talking about this as though illness and death are the same thing. And you do not shut a country down or force children to wear masks eight hours a day or talk about hybrid schooling or whatever based on a threat of sickness, we have we have downshifted we have downgraded we have defi- we have defined lockdown down and that is the ultimate thing right and there's even a justification for that the justification is this variant happened people didn't get vaccinated fast enough viruses mutate maybe this will mutate into another virus that is going to be deadlier and worse but again, if you ask the American people, the, the thing that's going to kill us isn't here yet. It may never come, but it could. Should we lock down in order to prevent that? I don't think they would say yes. Uh, but they, are, they have put all of this together, right? Rising caseloads, pro- entirely among the unvaccinated, almost entirely among the unvaccinated. These stories of breakthrough infections, we don't have any numbers on. And we don't have any numbers on the severe hospitalization of the breakthroughs and deaths among the breakthroughs in order to extrapolate nationally about what happens if Delta goes unchecked. That's my, so that's where we are. Like if you want to take this in the most good, most, the flattest and least ideological, political, whatever way possible, you say there is no justification for the panic among the vaccinated none noah i'm sorry i've been interrupting you so uh my question to you would be then uh but uh, how about this let's go to the uh, obama 60th birthday party so obama's having a 60th birthday party in martha's vineyard and it becomes a whole political football because he's having too many people there are going to be too many people, and it's terrible. You shouldn't have so many people at a thing when the Delta variant is raging. And then they cancel it, then they uncancel it, then they this, then they that. 
And the whole thing is people looking through binoculars trying to see whether people are wearing masks or not. It's outside! The CDC doesn't say you're not allowed to wear you that you have to wear masks outside. But the, but wait, can I just hop in for yeah. one second to say? That, but that's a perfect example of why we have confusion and fear being sown among regular people every day on this subject. The reason the Obama birthday bash was annoying to a lot of people is that they were doing exactly what you should be doing if you're vaccinated and having a big party outdoors, which is not wearing masks and enjoying yourself. That's what the vaccine was for. But the the same people, many of whom actually attended that party, will go on television and, and stoke fear in order to, as Noah said earlier, because they can't get the unvaccinated to get the shot. They'll stoke fear among well-intentioned people who are vaccinated so that everyone will start to conform to, to requirements and restrictions that really only the unvaccinated should have to, to have right now, like mask wearing, distancing, all that stuff. So that's, I think, the irony here is that, so, you know, you'll, DeSantis and Abbott and these governors of red states are getting constantly hammered in the media for lifting restrictions, for not having, you know, for saying you can't force kids into masks, et cetera, et cetera. But then you have the head of the teachers union saying, you know what, we really can't force teachers to get vaccinated. She gets a pass on that. They don't. This is so politicized now by both sides. I will both sides this because it's true. But the people with the power right now are on the Democratic side, and they are constantly showing a kind of hypocrisy between their behavior and their messaging that drives people bonkers. Yeah, I mean, I just don't know what life is like in a place where people listen to health, public health officials. I mean, it's probably coming back, but it's not here yet. Um, I, you know, to me, there are two types of camps when it comes to the Obama birthday party, the people who, who are really annoyed by it because they think it's e, A, either tone deaf, doesn't you know, take the measure of the moment, or be hypocritical because these people are, as Christine says, you know, the, the type that will lecture you uh, and behave differently among themselves and behind closed doors, as it were. And then the other camp is the people who don't really care because they're out enjoying themselves. They didn't see this story. They were at their own party on Saturday night. I am firmly in the latter camp. Um, Gauge your own level of risk tolerance and leave me the hell alone is my stated position. Um, But this is not acceptable, again, to the people who, who, who are even supposedly the rational voices in the room. Um, John, you like this this gentleman. I'm going to read an extended passage from him because it is, to me, shockingly insane. Um, uh, David uh, Forrest Wells, or Wallace Wells, Wallace David Wells. Wallace Wells, I'm sorry, who uh, writes for the Intelligencer New York Magazine interviewed. Um, Eric Topol, uh, who is a pretty prolific guy, one of these people in the pandemic who became, you know, a universal fixture, uh, who, you know, has understands what he's talking about. And he teed off on the vaccinated in this interview. And I'm going to read a briefly extended passage. Quote, the vaccinated, who are now a very slight majority, again, we're already off the rails because they are not a slight majority of the entire population, or 56% of the entire population, if you include children, literally every human being on the planet, including those who are ineligible for the vaccination. vaccination. If you go 18 plus, it's 60, 60 plus. Um, Those people just think the pandemic's over. There's still this sense that if you're vaccinated, you're good to go. I mean, I've even seen on television, you know, some sort of uh, our leading health experts tell people it's perfectly okay to have indoor gatherings among vaccinated people. Well, that's not true. So you're getting bad advice. He goes on. This booster thing is yet another issue because we don't even know if there's going to be a protection against Delta. I mean, everybody's assuming it, but there's no data. Lean, Lean on that for a minute. There's no data. 
he's making the same wild assumptions that he's criticizing other people for making predicated on by his own admission no data but that's why the panic you see so if there's no data then you have two ways of going right no data you have like a a a continuum right no data is right in the middle so you can either panic or you cannot panic <laughs> And that's the interesting thing about sort of conventional opinion in the United States, which is there seems to be a bias in favor of panic. He's saying we have no data. Don't have anybody over to your house. We don't have any data. Don't you understand? There's no data. (laughs) And you're saying there's no data. Are you crazy? You're crazy. What are you talking about? There's no data to support the idea that you shouldn't have people in your house. Now, I'm with you. The interesting thing about the pandemic, as we've now been through it for 18 months, is that it reveals that what people take as common sense is very much a sliding scale. You know, I mean, you know, we would always say like common sense is sort of living by nostrums that people have lived by forever, which is, you know, go out, you know, go out with an umbrella, but don't go out with a lightning rod, you know, or something like that. Like that would be common sense. But then maybe common sense is don't go outside at all. What are you crazy? It's raining. It's raining out there. You'll get wet, and there's a chance you'll get hit by lightning. But see, but this this is actually why philosophically this is a real pro- more of a problem for conservatives than for liberals, I, I believe, because we we have tended to think of ourselves as the people of common sense, right? This was William F. Buckley saying you'd rather be governed by everyone in the New Haven phone book instead of you know elite bureaucrats. But there's a real we don't have the common sense has shrunk to like you're either a Pollyanna who's going on with your life as if there's no pandemic, or you're Chicken Little, and there's there, there really is not a way to square that circle if you don't have political leaders who will both push back on the on the chicken littles in the public health bureaucracy and kind of have some sort of restrictions in place only for the Pollyannas. And that's, I think, what a lot of the vast middle of America is like, why can't we just say, if you're not vaccinated, you can't do these things and say, if you are vaccinated, you can't do this. That is, that's the common sense. Liberals are happy to use the power of the state to try to force people to change their behavior. That is their thing. It's been their thing for a long time. But conservatives right now don't have a lot of voices saying that thing. We have a lot of panic on our side, too. And that's worrisome because the messaging that should be getting out isn't in this regard. And there's no way to push back against that state power that's, that is too big right now. But, but what's driving me crazy also about the, the panic, especially as it's coming from public uh, health officials and, and, and administration figures and uh, media figures who have you know, been all over this thing, is um, what, what, is the, what is the end game alternative here? What are, what are they saying we, 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 need, we need to accomplish instead? They're, they're, they're just saying what we have isn't working. This isn't working. We're bad. We can't, we can't fix this. Stay home. Put on masks. Uh, get vaccinated, but vaccines won't help you anyway. And uh, have a have a nice day. And and we're done. Like there's no, I don't I don't understand where we're headed with this. This is it. Right. We have a vaccine. If you if you take it, you're in much 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 better shape than if you don't. And that's it. Okay, here's this is a, going back to us being the rational people in the room, which is very conceited, but nevertheless, I'll I'll allow it. 
Um, they can't tell you what the end game is because the end game is this forever. The end game is masking forever. The end game is distancing forever. The end game is state control over the minutia of your daily life forever. They can't allow themselves to articulate that, but that is the end game here for these people is that the pandemic never ends. It is perpetual. And, and because it will never end, it will be this disease. If, if we're, if we're lucky, if we if, if we do what we achieve, what we want to achieve here is to make this endemic. And so that's it's just and part of daily life. Um, but to, to, to make, to make that case means to tell people that you have to live with COVID for the rest of your life. Well, and notice, I don't think it's a coincidence. This is such a good point, Noah, because it's not a coincidence that a lot of our very um, uh, controversial uh, social issues are now spoken of as if they are to a pandemic or a disease. You know, gun violence is a pandemic. Racism, structural racism is, is a public health issue. We're seeing this kind of language, which is often used to justify the control that I think you're, we're properly pushing back against, to now define things that really should be battled out in the political and cultural sphere. Mm-hmm. It's it, That's getting leached away too. And that worries me a lot in terms of how we're going to be able to have public debate over these really controversial issues in the future. Right. Now, I, I want to conclude by reading something that Rochelle Walensky, the director of the CDC, said on Friday, because what is astonishing here, and 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 Abe's what Abe just said go speaks directly to this, is if you listen to what they're saying, they are now trashing the virus even as uh, the vaccine even as they are attempting to get everybody to take the vaccine so he, in her own this is her statement our vaccines are working exceptionally well she told wolf blitzer they continue to work well for delta with regard to severe illness and death they prevent it but what they can't do anymore is prevent transmission unquote that's not true. she doesn't first of all if it is true, if it turns out to be true, we don't know that yet. She says it. As I mean, everything it is, we know we, right. suggests that's not true. That's right. But so maybe she, if she's got some other data out there, let her rip. Okay. But otherwise, we don't have any reason to believe her. So her, her, not that I need to explain her position, but her position is there's evidence to suggest that Delta gets in the nose and the stuff is in the nose and and you sprit, you spritz it from your nose at people and it hits them and it's so contagious that in the couple of days between when you get it and when you might start thinking that you have it, you can be spewing it all over the place and it doesn't prevent transmission. Having said that, we have no, as you said before, we have no data that prove this to be the case, except the Provincetown study in which, Bear as week. I said before, not only Bear Week, but people lied to the health officials about whether or not they they got the vaccine. There is no way that there was a 60% transmission rate among the vaccinated in one town anywhere. If that were the case, there would be 500,000 cases of COVID right now in the United States and not 100,000 or a million cases to positive tests of COVID or whatever, rather than 100,000. Like that's ridiculous. This, it's transparently false. The study is transparently the result of people not tell, not reporting accurately to yourself. And now the CDC is stating that the vaccine does not prevent transmission. And what on earth does she want to be going around saying something like that, that she doesn't know to be true, 
when she's trying to get people to take the vaccine. It's insane. She's trying to control the behavior of the vaccinated and is harming the argument that she's trying to make to the unvaccinated, who are the only people who are really seriously at risk here. This is the nature of the psychosis that has now gripped the public health establishment in the United States. It is totally maddening. maddening. And you know what else is maddening? Our crazy relationship with China and its economy. I bring this up because David Bonson's newsletter DividendCafe.com. I've been telling you about it. That's the one he does weekly. The one he does daily is the DCToday.com. This week's is about investing in China. And it's, I'd say it's about 1,500 words long, full of charts. And my God, is this an interesting, flavored, fascinating analysis of what China's behavior means if you are an investor and not to, you know, not to like cut to the chase. But if I were smarter about being able to summarize some of these things, I would do that. But what he basically says is that as an advisor, he tells people, don't go into direct China equity ownership. Don't buy stocks in Chinese companies because the Chinese government is cracking down on them, trying to show them who's boss trying to deal with, you know, trying politicizing uh, public, you know, private ownership uh, at a moment when they are, they're trying to get a hold of Hong Kong and, and other. And so that's, but the very, the very uh, patterns that are leading them to do this, that mean that you probably shouldn't go into Chinese equity ownership, uh, also work to cause them to support and stabilize their own bond market, which is a new phenomenon in modern global capital markets, large, liquid, and robust, and offers a sizable premium to U.S. bond markets in yield and income. David comes at this from the perspective of a political and moral conservative. He does not like the Chinese government. He does not like its behavior. He does not like its totalitarianism. But he is also able to look at this coldly, dispassionately, cold, you know, with a cold eye and give you real advice about how the world works and what this might mean for you. That's DividendCafe.com, the DCToday.com from the Bonson Group. Go to DividendCafe.com and subscribe. The Bonson Group, the anecdote, the antidote to the intellectual spaghetti of the financial services and management industry. Um, so uh, I think we're losing this argument. We are losing this argument because there are just too many, uh, the, the relentlessness, if you sort of add up the media's hunger for bad news uh, and the, uh, the public health establishment's control of the conversation and the interesting and almost naked way in which uh, this is being used as a political cudgel against Republican governors. We've talked about DeSantis a lot and what's going on with DeSantis. And DeSantis, I think, probably did overreach with this thing about saying that no cruise ship could test uh, anybody for having the virus. And, and a, a court has now ruled that that is a, you know, that that may be both a, a, a interstate commerce clause uh, violation and a, and a free speech violation, uh, which which I think has has some merit. 
But there's a story in the New York Times, not to constantly cite the New York Times, but what the hell else am I supposed to do, about um, Texas and Greg Abbott and the ban on COVID mandates in Texas and how, oh my God, everything is happening terrible in Texas. And there are three or four people quoted in the article. <clears throat> Ron Nirenberg, the mayor of San Antonio, the governor has shown a callous disregard for life. Liberal Democrat hopes to be governor himself. Um, the mayor of Austin, uh, whose name is, I'm sorry, I'm trying to find the name. Of, well, the mayor of Austin, whoever, whoever the hell the mayor of Austin is, attacking at Mayor Steve Adler. I'd say we're in a pretty dire place. Uh, he thought that people had a right not to get vaccinated, but I don't think people have the right to put the rest of the community at risk. I don't have that much of a problem uh, with that statement. Houston's Mayor Sylvester Turner, uh, uh, you know, sort of attacking Abbott. Uh, public, you know, uh, professor at the University of Texas at Austin uh, attacking. Um, Basically, this is just, you know, like a naked political attack on Greg Abbott, um, who, who did not pass this in a vacuum. Like he, there's a state legislature, you know, uh, famously the governor of Texas until the last couple of terms was a very weak governor and the state legislature ran everything. Nonetheless, um, you know, there's all this, oh, Texas and Florida are really like, the, they're the leading edge and everything is so terrible because they're, you know, racking up the number of cases in the country. Fine. Texas is the second largest state in the country and Florida is the third largest state in the country. And as Abe has been pointing out for a year and a half, neither of them had a terrible coronavirus surge and they may have been sort of like waiting for it. They may have been sort of like, this may have been their time in the Corona charnel house um, because we don't know really how it happens. We don't know that masking and social distancing and all that really work. And, and here we are. Abe, what do you think? By the way, because Texas and Florida's numbers are not bad. Right. I'm sorry. They're just not bad. No, I'm briefly, before I, I'm interrupting you, yeah, and I apologize, Abe, briefly, but <laughs> this has been nakedly political since forever, well into 2022. I mean, the, the epicenter of this new outbreak, this new epidemic, isn't Texas, isn't Florida, it's Louisiana. But no one's talking about Louisiana, and, and their case numbers are insanely high because Louisiana's governor is a Democrat. This has been evident in how the press has approached Colorado since day one of this pandemic. Colorado has been very libertarian in its approach to virus, uh, virus mitigation measures, especially since vaccines were on the market. It was one of these states that joined with, uh, you know, I think it was 15, 16 other states that had repealed their mask mandates in early spring. Uh, I think it was early April that Colorado got rid of its mask mandate. Nobody talked about it. Even today, with the CDC re reissuing you know, masking guidances, uh, it's all local. The, the state has not imposed a heavy hand. Um, certain districts in Denver, for example, some districts are requiring kids to wear masks in schools. Others are not. Uh, it, is it is very much a local approach. And again, because the state's political culture is very blue, it does not interest the political press whatsoever. There's no ox to be to, to be gored here that would satisfy their desire to see Republicans pilloried for this sort of thing. It is so nakedly and obviously political that it should be shameful if there was a capacity for shame present left in the American press. Look, I, I think we're probably being too nice in our discussion of the panic in that we we are assuming that 
so much of that panic is actually panic. Whereas I think a good deal of it is not wanting to give up an opportunity to finger point and scold people. Um, and that is most evident in these stories attacking uh, uh, Republican states. But not just them, by the way. I think there's something to the Obama, the hysteria over yep. Obama's birthday party. Like the 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 permission that what's happened over the last 18 months has given to everybody to be Mrs. Grundy and go around and 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 tell everybody what to do and how to wag their finger um, and, and all of that is, is really startling. Uh, most of that has fallen, you know, has been conveniently political, right? Because uh, you could go at the more libertarian approach and say, you see, you're just trying to kill people out of your lack of interest and, in, you know, doing the right thing uh, because of course you're all Republicans and you want to do the wrong thing. But um, that does not seem to necessarily have entirely partisan boundaries because um, uh, like I say, this Obama birthday party, which seems to conform to all regnant proper standards, uh, nothing. Right. But there but there's also the the other narrative I think that's that's dangerous that's that's uh, been entrenched now is the sort of the 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 public health bureaucratic elite the Biden administration anyone on the partisan side of this issue on the left has made it their story to say we're not the ones who politicize this it's the republicans they made this a partisan issue this is a partisan issue for them and we're just dealing with the science well as we know they're really not i mean they're they're their definition of the science, given how little data they have for these decisions that they're making, and they're obviously beholden to their own special interest groups, which they don't want to acknowledge, makes that false. But that's the story. It's, look, these crazy Republicans. But of course, if you look at it from another perspective is governors like Abbott, governors like DeSantis are responding to the needs and demands of their voters, their constituents in their states. That's how our system is supposed to work. Now, they might make they might overreach. And I agree with John DeSantis with the cruise industry was an overreach, particularly for a pro-business Republican, because it should it, it's in the business's interest to be able to say it's safe to get on our ships again. Um, and he shouldn't be thwarting their ability to run their business the way they see fit. So I, I agree that it's good that he got slapped down for that. But all the other stuff he's done, he saved more senior citizens in a state that's much older than, than say, the, the New York uh, than Cuomo did. And he doesn't get credit for that in the mainstream media because it has to be made partisan. But their partisanship doesn't allow them to see that. So when DeSantis attacks Biden as a response to something Biden said about him, it's DeSantis who's made this a partisan issue. So that story is very consistent in the mainstream media, at least. I've been watching it. I mean, I'm a Floridian. Uh, I was born and raised there. I still have a lot of family and friends there. So I follow, I, I both get their perspective as Floridians and I watch it in the mainstream media. It's shocking. I mean, you can see it happen in real time every time a story. Look, we have to, we also have to remember the 60 Minutes package about DeSantis that was <laughs> about how DeSantis was, was not supplying the vaccine to you know communities of color right because, because he's he so hates for publics <laughs> yeah because he so hates the he so hates the vaccine that he was trying to give it to everybody that he liked and not to people you know who who he doesn't like or whatever and now it's like four months later and you know the story just shifts it is whatever it needs to be at any given time and uh, donald trump thanks the media very much for helping them, you know, uh, continue to make Ron DeSantis a problematic person for 2024. Uh, that's the joke here, is that the more they trash DeSantis, the more they help uh, uh, 
Trump make the case that he isn't necessarily the only controversial person who might be running for president in 2024. So they're doing it again, is what I'm saying. And we will do this again tomorrow. Uh, Thank you for listening. Welcome back, Christine. For Abe, Noah, and Christine, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.